For centuries, Christians have fought one another over whether or not you should sprinkle, pour, or dunk. In previous generations, they actually murdered each other over the issue. Why did the Apostle Paul ever base his call for church unity in Ephesians 4 verses 3 to 6 on the fact that there is only one baptism? To answer this question, we need to carefully look with our study leader Dave Wurtson at the seven ones the Apostle Paul placed before the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about being diligent to maintain the unity of the faith. We're into the down-to-earth practical section of the book of Ephesians. And as we're studying this book, I read through what we've covered so far again this morning, and I'm amazed at the incredible gifts that the Lord has given to you. He told you in chapter 1 that if you've received Christ as your Savior, that you've been already, as far as God's concerned, caught up into the heavens with the Lord Jesus. That your eternal destiny is so certain that from God's perspective, he's already taken you to live with his sons in the heavenlies. We learned in chapter 2 that you used to be dead in your sins. You used to be broken and, and unresponsive to God. And yet the Holy Spirit reached out and for by grace you've been saved through faith and that none of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We've learned in chapter 3 as we've been studying that incredible book that there's now no division between Jews and Gentiles. In the first century when Jesus was here, the Jews were the covenant people of Abraham. They were the people that had the Ten Commandments. They were the people that had the Abrahamic Covenant. They were the people that had the promise to David that God would send his Messiah into the world that would redeem the world. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. And the Gentiles had to become Jewish, really, or related to the Old Testament faith in order to, re- to know about eternal destiny. But we learned in the book of Ephesians that when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again and when he poured out his spirit at Pentecost, A new day was born in the plan of redemption. And I want you to realize that that's what the book of Ephesians wants you to get excited about. Though maybe we used to be far away, and some of you, even in your personal life, I really can't because I came to know Jesus as a five-year-old, and that's really a neat thing. But some of you can remember when you used to be estranged from God. You used to just be out there, really uninterested, not involved with God. And then you, you know how the Holy Spirit touched your life, and it brought you to faith. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. As we come to chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wants you to get this whole thing into the way that you live every day. How have you been living through the family holidays? Unity and humility and gentleness and patience are all the things that we've probably been in short supply, right? When you cram all your family in one household and you're all together, it's easy not to be humble. It's easy to be selfish and prideful. It's easy not to be gentle. And why the church family, we want to really pray for each other that in our individual family life, in our marriages, and in our extended church life, and in our relationships with unbelievers, that we're going to have the Holy Spirit giving us genuine unity. Now, if you look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about in verse 3 being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Look at the verse. Make every effort. Another way to translate it is I want you to be really diligent, really committed to maintaining the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit here is the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that produces a spirit of love for Christ and love for one another. 
At the end of, the, of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul prayed that we would understand the love of Christ. And now in Ephesians 4, he's shown us how that applies. The way that we get along, the way that we hold our families together is by working hard. It's not going to be an easy thing. We're going to have to work at getting along in our marriages. Work at getting along in our family relations. We're going to have to work at getting along in our church family. We're going to have to work at being a person that brings peace in, in the marketplace. The Apostle Paul says that we need to commit ourselves to being diligent to preserve the bonds of unity, which is the bond of peace. Then he has what probably is an ancient first century hymn. We've sung praise songs today, and we sang those marvelous words, that marvelous missionary songs, picturing how the church is in Asia and in Africa and, and the movement of the Holy Spirit around the world. I hope you noticed that as the young people were leading us, that I talked about this oneness of the body. Well, the, so we've sung about this universal body of Christ. In this next verse, the Apostle Paul gives us a whole series. He gives us seven holy ones. Paul gives us a series of holy ones, and I want you to look at that, because it's a kind of a verse that you can kind of read over and go, you know, what, what's he talking about? First of all, he says the reason we should be unified, the reason we should keep this bond of peace is because we're one body. Now, the, Paul is answering the question, what is the church? The very first question I want you to think about today is how do you answer the question, what is the church? And a lot of you think of the church as being your Catholic church, your Presbyterian church, your Methodist church, your Bible church. A lot of you kids, when you go to school, when you ask what church do you go to, and you automatically think in terms of the building you go to on Sunday morning. And I want you to understand that that's not what Paul means when he talks about the one body. At the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul told us that Christ is the head of a group of people, and he pictures all of this group of people as being the arms and legs and the, and the rest of the torso of Jesus. He says Christ Jesus is the head. And he pictures a group of people that in a symbolic way, in a symbolic way like a body, they fulfill or they complete the body of Jesus. So what is this one body? First of all, in, in, in arguing from Ephesians, not based upon what you might think the church is, but what did the Apostle Paul say the church was? The church is a group of people that are connected to the head. You're not in the body, you're not in the church, unless you're connected to the head. You've got to be connected with Jesus. And Paul told you in the book of Ephesians how to be connected with Jesus. In chapter 1, he says that you're called by God from before the foundation of the world, but he also goes on in chapter 1 to tell us that it's through your faith, that you come to a moment in your life, you come to a time in your life where you trust in Jesus. I don't care whether you're Roman in our church family, some of you are from some Assembly of God background, some of you are Episcopalians, some of you are Bible churches, a lot of you have been raised in our church family, because a lot of you have been raised with Mary and I, since you are little kids. But I want your greater commitment to be the church, which is the body of Christ, the one body, and it's composed of everybody who's connected to the head. And uh, this, this is what this means. Some of you are from other cities today. And when I go to another city, like last Sunday I spoke at a church in Detroit. And to be honest with you, I'm much more comfortable with you. Because you're my, my brothers and sisters. I know a lot better. It's easy for me to feel like a stranger. In fact, if I wasn't speaking there last Sunday, I might not want to go. Anybody ever been there, done that? Some of you have relatives that actually do know Jesus, but they didn't really want to come today because they don't feel comfortable. You need to get over that. 
Because your body is not the body that you go to just in your city or in your town. Your body, if you go to Guatemala, you're going to meet part of the body of Christ. You need to meet them. Because the Holy Spirit has great, great opportunities and great insights into relationship with him. We are one body. That's why Matt and Debbie and the rest of the team and some of the others are going down to be with part of the body of Christ in Mexico. Because the body of Christ is not our individual little place of worship. In Midlothian, I tell you this over and over again, but I want you, if you're part of our body, I want you excited about the body of Christ. Amen? I want you to be communicating to our Baptist friends. We are totally involved with them. We are totally committed to what they're doing. We are praying for them. Because why? Because we're united with them. You got that? Same thing true. Any part of the body of Christ in Midlothian, in Waxahachie, in Dallas, whenever you hear about people that are connected with Jesus through a personal trust in what he did for them on the cross and what he did for them in the resurrection, that is your family. That's my family. I don't care if they're charismatic or not charismatic. I don't care if they believe in baptizing people forward or backwards or sideways. It doesn't make any difference. If they have a personal intimacy with Christ, they are part of the one body. The book of Ephesians doesn't talk about individual local churches, although that's important. It's important for you to be part of a local church. But the local church must always be seen in light of this incredible, invisible unity of those of faith. It's one body. The Apostle Paul goes on and talks about another one. He says we have one spirit. It's the one Holy Spirit. This spirit that's going to hold us together is the Holy Spirit, and there's only one of them. Which means that if you connect with the Holy Spirit and I connect with the Holy Spirit, we'll be together. Now that's going to be a tough one. Remember, we have to work at that. But the one Holy Spirit we're talking about is what Paul talked about in Ephesians 1. For when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. One Holy Spirit. And that oneness of the Holy Spirit is what causes us to have oneness together. The third one he talks about, he says, you were called to one hope of your calling. If anything's divided the body of Christ, it's the hope of our calling. And some of you are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Some of you are pre-millennial, amillennial. Some of you don't know the foggiest idea what I talked to you about in the last sentence. <laughs> the church is divided about the hope of our calling. And this is how we're going to get unified. What's really important for us to realize is the Ephesians, Ephesians spells out a hope of your calling. You know what your calling is? Aaron and Doug going down there today. You know what? Aaron and Doug know exactly where they're going to go when they die. You say, Dave, how do they know that? Well, I've known Aaron since she was a little girl, and she came to know Christ as a Savior. She is consistently, though she's lived in a mixed family, she made a choice to come and live here in Midlothian with us so she could be part of our church family. She came to the Lord Jesus as a young kid, and she has consistently been growing in that, part of our youth group. And now she's a young, precious married couple with Doug. And we, I was right here in this auditorium when Doug and Aaron, in their marriage, made sure that Tim confessed their faith together in the Lord Jesus. That's the hope of their calling. You know what Aaron's confidence is today? Her confidence is that her Savior one day is going to take her to sit with him at the right hand of God. That is the hope of your calling. And you can be mid-trib, post-trib, sideways-trib, whatever trib you are, but don't lose that hope. Don't lose that hope because that's the big picture. Believers around the world need to capture the big picture again. 
Your hope is you're going to be with Jesus forever and ever. You're going to be, and according to Ephesians, you'll be sitting in his throne. It's fine for us to have family debates, and I am. I do believe we're going to be taken out before the tribulation, and I taught you the book of Revelation very carefully. But I want you to be much more focused on the ultimate destiny, the ultimate hope, because in Ephesians, it's the hope, and it's the, and the word hope doesn't mean maybe so, it means confidently you're going to be at the right hand of God because God made a promise, his son made a promise, and his Holy Spirit sealed it. If you know Jesus today, your hope, your destiny, what this one hope is, is what's your destiny going to be? And my destiny is going to be at the right hand of Jesus, as close as I can get to him. Amen? And that's your destiny. Isn't that awesome? If I die, I'm going to be absent from the body, present with my Savior. That's my destiny. That's my hope. And believers, no other, no other people have that destiny. No other religion can give you that kind of confidence. Jesus, the personal Christ, is the one that can give that to us. Then that leads us to what Paul wants to talk to us about, about this oneness of our baptism. He goes on and says this, there's one Lord, there's one faith, and there's one baptism. The one Lord that we confess is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a very powerful book, and I'm sure this will come into my messages. It's called uh, Da Vinci Code. It's sold over 3 million, probably 4 million copies by now. And he's a brilliant author. I've read some of his other books, Digital Fortress, and some other books that he's written, Dan Brown. And he, in a very skillful way, he communicates to you that Jesus is just another prophet. He married Mary Magdalene. He had children, according to Dan Brown. Jesus is just another prophet, building from a book like the, the Gospel of Thomas. And some of the other Gospels discovered at Nag Hammadi, Egypt. Dan Brown takes all the exterior, kind of the, the external circle of critical scholarship, all the way out idea that you can have, and very skillful like a great novelist can be, he weaves a story that sounds totally, totally makes a lot of sense, very intelligent. The idea is that in 325 of the Council of Nicaea, a bunch of masculine guys got together, the fathers of the Roman Catholic Church, they knocked all you ladies out and they turned a human Jesus that was married to Mary Magdalene and had children into the divine Jesus, the one Lord. Well, I got news for you. Ephesians was written about 250 years before the Council of Nicaea. And it's, you don't have to listen to what I say at all. But don't just listen to what Dan Brown says. This is a very early... I was a liberal, I'd have to tell you this. This book was written before the end of the first century. Almost every New Testament scholar will admit that it it's lays out what is consistent with Pauline theology. So you can decide that Paul lied and lost his life over his life and built a whole community of faith that has done more good than any other movement. People that genuinely believe what I've shared together today have not been the ones that produced an organized church that murdered people that didn't agree with them. The people that believe what we've shared today encourage people to personally receive Jesus. You couldn't get into this family by, by ritual and organization and hierarchy. You had to get into it by a genuine response. That message has permeated the world today. And the Apostle Paul wrote, I want you to know way back in the first century, the Apostle Paul didn't write that Jesus was just a great prophet married to Mary Magdalene. He said he was the Lord. That's what Paul means when he says there's one Lord. He says we have one Lord Jesus. We don't say Lord to Caesar. We bow before the Son of God 
because he is God's son, fully equal with God. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, in him, all the fullness of the divinity dwells in a human body. I didn't make that up, and I want you to be very clear about that. One of the greatest temptations in your life is going to be sucked into believing that you're going to worship a mother goddess and worship sexuality. Dan Brown is communicating what the Old Testament prophet Hosea was railing against. It was the worship of sexuality, which is always the danger. When you turn away from the true God, you start to worship the forces of nature, and sex happens to be a great, big, powerful one. In God's plan, it's a beautiful, holy thing. In the marriage relationship, it lays the groundwork and produces our precious kids and celebrates our precious unity with Jesus. But outside of marriage, it becomes a curse that hurts us. And the biblical Christ isn't against sexuality, but he says, don't worship it. You've got to worship me because I'm the one that conquered death. There's going to come a day when sexuality and sexual experience is not going to give you eternal life. But Jesus can so don't believe stuff like when, you read, when I read Dan Brown's book, I can't believe it. I say, good night. We're way back, 700 years before Christ, and the same heresy, the same temptation to worship a, a false goddess is hitting us again. We worship this morning the one Lord Jesus Christ. We worship this one Lord Jesus Christ, and we worship one faith, and that's what I've taught you about. You have to relate to this one Lord. The faith here is your personal decision according to the book of Ephesians, to open your heart to Christ. And that leads to your spirit baptism, which Paul means by one baptism. And he closes, completing the circle, coming back to one Lord. 